Please do turn with me in your Bibles to the passage we read from earlier on in Isaiah chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at uh, the whole of that passage. In the British Museum in London, there is an old mariner's chart uh, drawn up in 1525, and it outlines the coast of North America. Uh, the cartographer who created the map did so from information that was gleaned from various vessels that had uh, gone out to discover parts of North America. And so there were notations on the, the map where reefs were to be found, where the best harbors were to be seen. Uh, there were certain sections of the map, however, that were relatively blank. And those are the most interesting parts on the map, because in those areas where obviously they didn't know what resided, they put phrases like this, here be giants, here be fiery scorpions, here be dragons. You see, they were scared of the unknown. And I believe that fear of the unknown is something that it can so easily cripple us. It can be the fear of a medical report, a medical report that uh, we know is coming our way, or maybe it's the fear of redundancy, knowing that others have been made redundant. Or, or else it could be the fear of a bill, when we know that we just don't have the money in our account that will allow us to pay that bill comfortably. Fearful circumstances are innumerable, and we can find these circumstances utterly crippling. They can rob us of our comfort, they can take away our sleep, and ultimately, they can destroy our health and our peace. Well, Isaiah has spent his life, and if you read through those first 11 chapters of Isaiah, you will discover that he has been seeking to persuade people to trust in God and to not be afraid. He has said to them that as a result of their sinfulness, that they are going to be taken into exile, that they will spend a time under God's judgment. But even in the midst of that, He is saying to them, do not be afraid, because God has a plan. And He is saying to them, don't trust in false hope or in false saviors, but trust in the Lord. And so He says in verse 2, behold God, no one and nothing else. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. And here's the question for us as we come to this passage this morning. Will we trust God fully in the crises that we face in our lives? Or will we instead fearfully surround our supposed trust in God with other mechanisms of self-help, just in case God fails. My dad used to talk about a belt and braces job. Usually that meant to say whenever he was doing something that he would put in some sort of a reserve if it didn't go quite right. And sometimes we do the same thing with God. We will say, yes, I trust in God, but we will put other things in alongside that just in case somehow God doesn't do things in the way that we want Him to. And so we will make it trust in God plus. So let me ask you, do you feel secure in God alone? As I say, we have a tendency to complicate our trust in God. We trust in God plus our own strength. We trust in God plus our own intellect. 
or we trust in God plus our own ingenuity. We trust in God plus whatever else makes us feel a little bit more secure in ourselves. Well, I started off talking about the map in the British Museum, but before it made its way to the museum, it had previously belonged to Sir John Franklin in the 1800s. He was offended by the phrases that appeared in the map, here be giants, here be fiery scorpions, here be dragons. And he took a pen and he scored those phrases out. And in place of each one of them, he wrote in the phrase, here is God. Whatever frightens you, whatever worries you, whatever troubles you, whenever you see uncertainty and fear and the unknown, well, the passage we're going to look at this morning reminds us, wherever that is and whatever it is you're facing, here is God. This past week, I've had four funerals. I have one tomorrow and another one on Wednesday. I'll be honest, I feel a little bit punch drunk at this stage. Um, it has been a heavy burden has been resting over the congregation of First Ahokal over this past week. But it has come across to me very much this week that in the midst of that grief, no matter who it is that is facing the grief, no matter what different circumstances that have brought that grief about, that these three words can be written, here is God. He is there in the midst of it to help and support and guide. Well, speaking of God in this passage, Isaiah shows us what confidence can be ours because God is our salvation. Look with me at verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. I wonder if I were to ask the Christians here today, I wonder if I was to ask you, what is the greatest wonder of your salvation, what you might say? Perhaps you might say to me, well, the greatest wonder of my salvation is that my sins are forgiven. I know that I broke God's law. I know that I didn't deserve my sins to be forgiven, but they have been, and that's the greatest wonder of my salvation. Or perhaps someone else might say, well, the greatest wonder of my salvation is that a hell-deserving sinner like me is going to heaven, and that's the greatest wonder of my salvation. Or another might say, well, the greatest wonder of my salvation is that God's sinless, perfect, righteous Son died for my sins upon the cross. And if you give any of those answers well, all of them are absolutely right, and we should marvel at our salvation. But for Isaiah, the greatest wonder seems to be that even though God had been an enemy to him and to the people of, of Israel, that he becomes their friend. And so they receive from God something that they did not deserve. They deserve God's wrath. And Isaiah here is uh, imagining the, the, the words that Israel will speak on the day whenever they come out of exile. 
hundreds of years from now. He is imagining the words that they will speak at that time when they realize that their past has now been forgiven, when they realize that they have been given a new start, when they experience a new hope in their lives. And Isaiah here imagines them bursting with praise for God. I love the way that David puts this sort of hope in Isaiah, or sorry, in Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. There he says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. We deserve his anger forever, but he won't keep it. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's for those who are trusting in the Lord. What a message of hope this is. And in this message, the wrath of God towards sins is removed. What's wrath that the children of Israel deserved and it's wrath that we deserve. You see, when we think of how God must feel about our sin or the, the sin of our world, I want you to imagine times maybe whenever you feel a little bit of indignation. How do you feel whenever you see people taking tins of paint and, and daubing monuments that have stood for centuries, and you see them co covering these monuments with paint, or going up to certain buildings and throwing paint over the buildings, or going and sitting down in a row in the M25 and blocking traffic just because they feel they can't get things their way, sometimes even blocking ambulances that are going to, to pick people up. You know, feel a sense of indignation rising within you when you see those things happen. Well, you see, the problem is that God requires total obedience to His law. But the Bible shows us that every single one of us has sinned. You see, if you look at your life, if you've just committed one sin, you deserve God's wrath in full, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. God requires total obedience to His law, but the reality is that we haven't just broken one sin, or two, or three, or four. Each day, we commit multiple sins, sometimes without even realizing it. Ray Ortland says, his condemnation does fall and with full force, but not on us. It falls on our substitute. In his great love for guilty people, Jesus changed places with us at the cross. His sacrifice is the reason why God's grace is morally entitled to treat us like royalty, which He does. Isn't that amazing? We are now treated not like a spare, but as the heir. We have received a full and complete inheritance. That means today, right now, we have ready access to the King of Kings. 
We can speak with the one who has created the whole universe. Through prayer, we have direct contact with our royal father and king. All of the things that we did in the past to bring him shame, well, they've been forgiven. Those times when we sought to disown him and dishonor him through the things that we said and did, all of that is eternally forgiven because God's wrath has been brought upon his son, Jesus Christ, instead of being brought upon us. And if you're a Christian today, this is the reality for you. You deserve this, but you've received all this. You deserve God's wrath and judgment, but instead you've received God's mercy and grace, and you've been brought into the family of God. You see, He is our salvation. Well, let me ask you, can you say today, behold, God is my salvation? Can you say that? Do you know that you've been forgiven for your sins? Because if you don't know that, if you haven't trusted in Christ, well, you can do so today. Come and trust in Him. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to cleanse you from your unrighteousness, because Jesus has paid the price. And even where you sit in your pew, you can ask Jesus to be your Savior this morning. He is our salvation. Secondly, He is our strength. Verse 2, the Lord God is my strength. One day over Christmas, you're going to think I do nothing but watch TV. It's nearly true. Um, one, day, one day over Christmas, uh, we were watching a little bit of The World's Strongest Man. Did any of you see it over Christmas? Yeah. I must say it was incredible. There were some guys there who were even bigger than me. And uh, they were lifting the most incredible weights, um, uh, whether it was concrete balls the side of a suite of furniture or Volkswagen Beetles. Um, and there was a guy from Canada, and he was the one who sort of blew it all away as far as, as I could see. He made everything look so easy, uh, whilst uh, others looked like they were going to burst a blood vessel. Uh, he lifted weights kind of like you and I would lift a cup of coffee. Uh, that was the way it looked. But as I watched him, and indeed as I watched the rest of them, this thought kept, kept coming across my mind. What are these guys going to be like whenever they're old and wrinkly. You see these great guys at the height of their strength, but what are they going to be like whenever they're about 20 years older, whenever all of that muscle has turned into fat, just like I am now? What's it going to be like for them? You see, Alan, could you move on to the next two? You see, whether the strength we are into is physical uh, financial, can you move on to the next one for me? Physical, financial, or mental? The reality is that our strength is not permanent. Disease, fatigue, stress, age, all of these things take their toll on all of us. Uh, you know, as I say, I was convener here about 15 years ago. Um, some of you look as lovely as ever. Uh, as ever. Um, I sound like leather there. Some of you look like you're leather now. Anyway, uh, some of you look as lovely as ever. Uh, well, others of you have discovered the color of your hair has changed, and others, well, you've got 
a full head. I have transparent hair now. Um, uh, still others uh, are, are a bit like myself and you're taking up a little more space in the pew than you used to take. And the reality is that we're all, we're all getting a bit older. Uh, you know, that's how it is. And, and you know you're getting that way because when you get older, you start to think, um, you know, whenever it comes to climbing the stairs, if I can accomplish these stairs first, well, then I'll start to think about what else I can do. Or when you bend over to tie your shoelace, you start to think, well, what else can I do when I'm down here? And that is kind of the way it becomes whenever you get older. Whereas whenever you're young, you think it all stretches out in front of you. You reckon to yourself, you know, I can do anything. I can accomplish anything. And let me tell you, in, in, in the flash, in the blink of an eye, you're discovering that there's somebody else tying your shoelaces for you, or you're buying slip-ons instead. And so we need to be finding our strength elsewhere. We need a more dependable source of strength in our lives. And Jesus puts it this way in, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's not about our strength, but it's about the strength of the God in whom we trust. The story is told of an old Christian woman whose age began to take a terrible toll on her memory. At one time, she knew most of the Bible by heart, but eventually only part of one precious verse stayed with her. What a verse it was. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. As time went on, even that brief portion of Scripture began to slip away. In her last days, as she hovered near death, her loved ones noticed her lips moving. They bent in low to see if she needed anything, and they heard her saying over and over the one word that she remembered from the Bible, Him, Him. Him. She had lost almost all of her mental abilities, but she still had all the strength she needed because she had Him. Jesus Christ wants to be your strength too. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength, says verse 2. Who or what are you depending on in life? No one can give you the strength that the Lord Almighty will provide. He is our salvation. He is our strength. Lastly, you'll be glad to know He is our song. Verse 2, the Lord God is my strength and my song. I was visiting a lady from our congregation uh, before Christmas, can you move on? That's it there, lovely. I was visiting a lady from our congregation before Christmas, and she sang to me. Uh, very often when I call to visit with her, she'll start singing. In fact, she usually doesn't just sing one. She'll usually sing maybe four or five different songs. Uh, her niece was also in the house that day, and her, her niece said to her, uh, why do you like 
singing so much? To which she replied in song, I sing because I'm happy. You know that one? I sing because I'm free, for his eye is on the sparrow, and he watches over me. Can't even remember the way it goes at the end. I said earlier on I wasn't a good singer, but anyway, she was singing it. The lady was in her 90s, and she was singing, I sing because I'm happy. Isn't that wonderful? Listen to how David put it in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the merry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. When the wonder of God's saving love fills our hearts, we surely can't help but have a song of praise on our lips. That's what we were created for, to praise and to glorify God. In Revelation 14, we receive this forecast of what it will be like whenever we step into glory. We read there that the, the redeemed will erupt into music as never before, and we are told what it's going to sound like. It's going to sound like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, like the sound of harpists playing their harps, even nicer than your praise group here today. Sorry to say. Well, I'm not sorry to say. It's much nicer than any music that we've ever heard on earth. And it's going to be so different. It's going to have the, the sort of sustained intensity that a waterfall has. At times, there's going to be bursts of sound that are like claps of thunder. And yet, it will have the sweetness of an orchestra of harps. There is no sound like this in the world today. But one day, one day I'm going to be a part of, of that choir of praise in heaven, and I'm going to be singing with a perfect voice, perfect pitch. Let me ask you, are you going to be a part of that choir? Are you going to be there on that day? Will you be joining with the redeemed to praise and glorify God? Well, I'm going to be there. And therefore, I want to be practicing for it today. I want to be using my voice to sing and glorify God. And it's one of the things that I feel as, uh, I suppose, an older minister these days. It's one of the things that I, I feel is that praise, in some respects, has fallen in hard times. We almost leave it to the professionals singing at the front, and congregations don't raise their voices in praise in the way that they used to do. You're singing fairly well here in Connor today, but I do wonder if you could sing even better. And certainly amongst the youth, I feel that they're not using their voices in the way that, that we did. I can remember as a teenager, we used to have, um, I was going to say all nights, but they were all nights of prayer and praise. When we would have prayed, and then we would have sang, and we would have prayed some more, and we would have sang. And this would have gone all night, and it was wonderful. But I'm not seeing this sort of thing happening today the same. 
this is going to be our task or part of our task in heaven is to praise God. Do you want to use your voices to praise Him? Do you want to be part of that choir in glory? Well, then let's get practicing for it today and use our voices to glorify God. Verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You know, we live in a burning wilderness today, but God is the satisfaction for the believer. He opens up to us wells of life-giving fullness through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. He gives us enough for all time and also for eternity. Ray Ortland says, the prospect of thirsty, weary, dirty people pulling up bucket after bucket of fresh, cool water and endless supply, drinking deeply, pouring it over their heads, dunking their faces into it, splashing it on one another. That is the vision of God's gifts of salvation widely shared. Is there somebody here today and you're thirsty? You've maybe been trying the the broken wells of this world, and you've discovered as you've looked for satisfaction in the world that nothing, nothing has satisfied you. Nothing you have done has dealt with that thirst. Stop searching. It's here. Jesus is the one, and if you drink of Him, then you will have these wells of salvation within your soul. Jesus says in John 7, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And as we consider again this great salvation, it should make us want to sing to the glory of God. Verses 5 and 6, with this I'm finishing. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. John Trapp, the Puritan scholar, wrote, no duty is more pressed in both testaments than this or rejoicing in the Lord. It is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. Isaiah foresees a day when God's people will find freedom, and they will rejoice and discover a fearlessness in God's presence. Well, I have news for you. That day has come. We are living in that time, a time of freedom, a time whenever we have experienced the glorious goodness of God in salvation through Christ. We may know of our sins forgiven, through Jesus Christ, we know what it is to come from being those who are enemies of God to being His friends. Through Jesus, we have a joy that is unspeakable, and it should spill from our lips with songs of praise to our God. Have you that salvation? Well, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, come to Him and trust in Him believe in Him, and you will have everlasting life. And if you are a Christian, maybe, 
Maybe you've allowed your mind to become so caught up in the problems and issues of this world. Maybe you're looking down so much these days that you're failing to look up to the God of your salvation. And perhaps once again, by looking to Him, you will find that joy of your salvation. And you will know what it is for God to put a new song in your mouth. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this glorious passage in Isaiah chapter 12. And we thank You that Your Son, Jesus Christ, is indeed our salvation, our strength, and our song. And we ask, Lord, for any here today who do not know Christ, we pray that Your Holy Spirit right now will strive with them where they sit in their pew, and that they will pray that sinner's prayer, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Heavenly Father, we pray for a backslider here today, someone who has walked far from You. Well, we know You haven't left them, but we ask this morning that You will bring them close to You once more, that once again they may experience Your blessing. And Lord, perhaps for those whose enthusiasm to worship You has waned, we ask that You would give them again that song on their lips, that they may use their voices to yet praise God. Hear and answer our prayers now, as we offer them in Jesus' name. Amen.